0: today on Divine Truth Podcast. We must be focused on what we're
1: doing. Not being distracted about what perhaps is going on around us, not being distracted of what we have to do when we get home or whatever, or whatever else, but we need to be mindful and we need to be focused on what we did because we need to keep our minds focused, folks, on what Jesus Christ did for us unworthy
0: sinners. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed.
1: And we'll be looking at several verses, and I'm just going to share some things with you, and then we're going to uh, partake of the elements. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, is the founder of the church. And it says in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, and, this, and I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And being that Jesus Christ is the founder of the church, Jesus Christ is also the head of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, the apostle Paul writes, "For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church." Christ is the head of the church, isn't he? No counsel No bishop, no man, no group of people is the head of the church, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And because Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the church is subject unto Christ. And being that Christ is the head of the church, Jesus Christ left the church two ordinances. And let me just add this side note for you this evening, folks, that neither one of these two ordinances impact or impart any measure of saving grace. They are merely symbolic. They don't make you more saved than you were before. They impart absolutely no saving grace whatsoever. The first ordinance is, of course, the ordinance of baptism. And we believe that the scriptures teach very clearly that baptism is for believers only as a public testimony of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not believe in paedo-baptism. We do not believe in infant baptism here. We do not believe that there is any part of Scripture that in any way, shape, or form, even uh, implicitly, much less explicitly, state that infant baptism is scriptural. We believe that the Scripture teaches that baptism is for believers only. And it is for a public testimony of our faith in Christ. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said these words, that whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And folks, baptism is something that we do publicly To tell the watching world that we are identifying with Jesus Christ. And so the word of God would have much difficulty with adhering or with uh, approving, if you will, of someone's conversion to faith in Christ who willingly refuses to make a public declaration of their faith in Christ. By the waters of baptism. Now if there's physical ailments or something like that, then that's a different story possibly. But if it's a simple refusal to make a public testimony of your saving faith in Christ, the Bible, the Word of God, calls very much into question the veracity of that person's faith. And so, not only did the Lord Jesus Christ leave us the ordinance of baptism, but the other ordinance that Jesus Christ left for us was the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And like baptism, the Lord's Supper is for believers only. We do not believe in the doctrinal error of transubstantiation. The doctrine of transubstantiation is that doctrine that believes that the elements that the blood that the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is very clear that the, that the bread and the wine are just merely symbolic. Of the body and blood of Christ. That they are in no way. Uh, changed into. The literal body and blood of Christ. It is only figurative. But we also do not believe in the non-scriptural doctrine. Of what's known as consubstantiation. And that's a little bit weakened in the stance. But it's basically the stance that says. That the literal presence of the body and blood of Christ. Are present during the time. Of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a serious and solemn event that God's people must take seriously and solemnly. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper, I want us tonight just for a moment to contemplate how we are to come to the Lord's Supper. And I want us to notice this tonight in three headings. We're to come without division, we're to come without distraction, and we're to come without distress. Number one, how are we as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, those that have been saved, how are we to approach the Lord's Supper? We know that we're to approach it seriously. We know that we're to approach it solemnly. But what are the visible marks, the outward visible marks of approaching the Lord's table in that way? First of all, we are to come without division. We are to come to the Lord's table without division. That is without division in your mind and division in your heart and division in your actions. You know, with all the other problems, all the other issues that plagued the church at Corinth, their approach to the Lord's Supper was no less of a problem. And the Apostle Paul instructs them on the true way to approach the Lord's Supper. And it, folks, listen, it is not with a haphazard attitude that, have des- that, was, that describes the church at Corinth. Look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, where Paul says these words, Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says there. Paul's declaration here is not to give advice. Paul's declaration here is not even mainly to give direction. Paul is speaking here with apostolic authority. The word declare is a Greek word, paragaleo, and it literally speaks of a uh, not just a statement that is made, but it is, speaks of a directive. It speaks of a command. It speaks of a set of instructions that are given with the command. These are not things, church, what Paul is about to say. These are not things that Paul would wish us to practice. These are things that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are expected to practice. Now just to kind of give you an idea of how the Greek word paragaleo is used in other passages of the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Now we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. It's the same Greek word as in Our word here in verse 17. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6. Now we command you. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. The apostle Paul says. These things command and teach. And so folks understand. That what Paul is about to say. To the church at Corinth. And by application is saying to us. Is not directions. It's not advice. It is apostolic commands. What Paul is about to instruct us tonight, folks, about the Lord's Supper, is not to be taken lightly. It is to be taken seriously. And Paul says in verse 17, now in this that I declare unto you, what does he say? I praise you not. And the word praise is a word that means an expression of admiration or approval. The command that the apostle is giving this church, the the charge that he is giving them. He is charging them on their actions because he does not approve of their actions. Because there were severe problems in the church. This church, as we've seen on Sunday nights, as we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians thus far, we've seen that this church is riddled with problems. Problems. The problems are so severe that when you got to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, what you have there is you have a, have a, a young man who's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says, as the church, not only are you allowing it, but you're praising his actions. This church was riddled with problems. And their approach to the Lord's Supper was also a problem. And the problem is nestled in two, in two basic points. Number one, they had a shameful assembly. The church, this church, the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul said, is shameful in their assembly. Look down at verse 18. He says, for first of all, stop right there. First is a Greek word, protos, and it means first in order or first in importance. Paul says, here's the first thing I want to point out to you. You've got some problems when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And here is the number one problem. Again, look at verse 18. When ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. The word divisions there is a word that has the idea of being divided because of conflicting aims or conflicting objectives. It's the same word that's used, it's a schisma in the Greek, and it's the same word that's used in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that means, that's translated to tear. And that's really what divisions does, doesn't it? That's really what divisions do. When there are divisions among God's people, what happens is that it tears the assembly. It fractures the church the Corinthians, they couldn't agree on anything. Nor did they work to serve one another. And instead of spending their time worshiping together and serving together, they spent their time arguing and disputing with one another. Now it, may, it appears in this verse, uh, maybe somewhat, that Paul may have thought that the reports were exaggerated just a little bit because notice what he says at the end of verse 18. I partially believe it. But as you know, from our Sunday night studies together, the reports would not have been hard to believe, would they? Paul spent the first part of this first letter to the Corinthians rebuking them for their divisions. Chapter 1, verse 10 through verse 17, and then he picks it back up at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, talk about the fact that they were divided between party loyalties, between Cephas and, and and other preachers. And those divisions, according to chapter 1, verse 11, often ended in quarrels. Listen, church, when divisions in the church are not taken care of, what is the ultimate end? Arguing and fighting. And the only one that gets the glory from that is Satan. And as we will see, they were not only divided on a party loyalty level, but they were also divided socially. There were those in the church that had very little, and there were those in the church that had much. And such division in this church that was caused by selfishness, listen, should never be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The early church, in fact, set an example for us. I want you to write this verse down, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44 The scriptures record this, and all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, the early church was anything but divided on a social level, wasn't it? The early church had the reputation of caring for its people. And then the Bible says in verse 46, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. The early church gave us the testimony of being unified. But when the Corinthians got together for the love feast, man, it was everybody for themselves. And one of the most fearful things in the church when division comes is that when division comes in the church that is the first and surest sign of a spiritual sickness when a church is divided when a church is torn when a church is fractured it's not because one side is right and one side is wrong that's what causes the fracture in the first place Because one side thinks they're right and the other side thinks they're they're wrong. But it's not about one side being right and one side being wrong. What the problem is, folks, is when divisions come in the church, it is a sign of spiritual sickness. And many times, doctrinal compromise is a result of dissension in the congregation. Which is why divisions need to have no place in the church. Paul says, you come to the Lord's table with divisions? You come to the Lord's table with either divisions in your heart, in your mind, or or physical divisions? I don't approve of that. I don't approve of that. You say, well, what gives Paul the right to approve or disapprove apostolic authority? Right? Right? apostolic authority that's what gave Paul the right to approve or disapprove of actions Paul says in verse 19 for there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you now far from an approval of division what Paul does in verse 19 is he does give what we could call the upside of a division The phrase "there, there, uh, there must be" is is a translation from a single Greek word "die," and it and it means it is necessary, or it must be, and and really in a in a paradoxical way, Paul states that when you have people, divisions are an inevitable occurrence. Some type of disagreement is an inevitable occurrence. But Paul says the bright spot of that is that there, when there is divisions, one of the things that it does do is that it highlights the love and care that exists in other areas of the church. And what Paul is condemning is church-wide division. Because even in the church when you have an inevitable disagreement... What that should emphasize is the love and the care elsewhere. And listen, folks, church divisions, ungodly and sinful as they are, can be used of the Lord to prove the worth of the faithful. Because in the midst of bickering and divisiveness, those that are causing the problems are a lot of the times separated out. Like the gold is from the, like the gold is from the dross. In fact, evil helps manifest good, doesn't it? You know, I don't know if you've ever had any of the, anybody say to you to try to disprove Christianity or whatever, say, say something along the fact that uh, if there is God, why is there so much evil? If God is in control, why is there so much evil? Listen, we don't need to be afraid of that statement, do we? Because how, what I basically do is I look at that person and I'll say, how do you know what is good and what is evil? The only way you know what is evil is because there's a good standard who is God. The very fact that evil exists and you understand that it is evil doesn't disprove the reality of God, it proves the reality of God. Because evil manifests the good. And Trouble in the church creates a situation In which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be made manifest. Paul says, I don't approve of you. Because you're coming to the table of the Lord with division. With bickering. With fighting with each other. And he says, that's a shameful assembly. But not only does Paul say you're coming to the Lord's table with a shameful assembly, but you're also coming to the Lord's table with a shameful attitude. A shameful attitude. Verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, into one place. This is not to eat the Lord's supper. You know what Paul's saying? Listen, they were so sinful in their assembly that their attitude was not one which was truly coming devoted to what they were doing. Paul, in essence, is saying to this church that what you are doing has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. It has nothing to do with the ordinance, but it has everything to do with you. We must all be very careful, folks, and we must be very mindful that we never approach the worship of God with our own agenda, making it all about what God can do for me. And then he says in verse 21, For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. The poor believers at Corinth were coming in to the love feast, and they were expecting that things were going to be shared with them. No, no, no. In Corinth, every man for themselves, If you brought plenty, then you could have plenty. If you were poor and didn't bring anything, well, then you went away hungry. And those who brought food would gorge themselves and get drunk. Now, folks, this is in the church. This isn't in somebody's home. This is in the church. These believers, and Paul does call them brethren, believe it or not these believers were in the church having disdain for those that had little were gorging themselves and drinking themselves into a drunken stupor and there are some historical there are some historical works that say that the corinthians would end the lord's supper with a drunken sexual orgy in the church. Paul says, I don't approve of that. You have a shameful attitude. Look what he says in verse 22. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? He says, if you were going to do this, if you were just going to gorge yourself and get drunk, you could have done that at home. Why are you bringing it to the church? Look what, he says, look what he says in the other part of verse 22. Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not. Is, is, he says, "Is the reason that you're doing this? Is the reason that you're bringing this type of attitude and this type of an assembly into the church? These type of actions is the reason you're doing it. Is it because you despise the church, folks? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something very clearly. When people cause divisions in the church, it is exactly because they despise the church of God. It's exactly why it is." And someone and and people who cause divisions in the church live in absolutely no fear of God. Or he says, do you just have disdain for the poor? Which is it? But either way, church, who are they really showing disdain for? Christ. Any division... That occurs in the church or disdain that one person feels for another, no matter the reason, is ultimately, above everything, a matter against the Lord and the church. You may think, somebody may think that they are attacking that person, but the one they are attacking is the Lord. You're just a physical representation. Paul says, when you come to the Lord's table, don't come or come without division. Don't come arguing and bickering with one another. Come without division. But not only he says come without division, but also come without distraction. Come without distraction. It is agreed by most conservative Bible scholars that the book of 1 Corinthians was was written before any of the Gospels. Now, if that is true, then this account of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 is the first biblical account of the events of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says in verse uh, verse 23, for I have received, and Paul received this directly from Christ. And this most beautiful and meaningful Christian celebration was was instituted on the night the very night that Christ was betrayed arrested and tried and in the midst of Satan's worst God accomplished the best he gave us this ordinance so we would always bear in mind the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and let us not approach the table of the Lord with any distractions. Verse 23, let's read what Paul has to say as he records the events of that final night of the life of Christ. What a time it must have been, right? As the 12 went up into the upper room and they all sat down at the table leaning on an elbow, their elbow and kind of overlapping with one another and they were listening to the Lord speak. What a time that must have been. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it. And he said, take eat, this is my body which was broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. We must be focused, church. We must be focused on what we're doing. Not being distracted about what perhaps is going on around us, not being distracted of what we have to do when we get home or whatever or whatever else. But we need to be mindful and we need to be focused on what we did because we need to keep our mind focused, folks, on what Jesus Christ did for us, unworthy sinners. There was no greater sacrifice, was it, than for Jesus Christ to lay down his life for his people. And in this Lord's Supper, we are given an opportunity to remember and commemorate and celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, God of very gods, the creator God, the second person of the triune Godhead, the eternal son, took upon himself flesh and died the full wrath of God poured out on him so that you and I could be free from sin, from Satan, and from hell. With all that Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary, why would we want to approach the commemoration of that event with distractions? Why would we want to approach that event, a commemoration of that event, with division? And number three, why would we want to come with to that commemoration of that event with distress? You know, the Apostle Paul having addressed the problems now addresses the fact of why it shouldn't be that way. And I'm using the word distress as a synonym for evil. How do we come to the Lord's table without sin? Verse 28. What does it say? But Let a man examine himself. Only you... And the Holy Spirit can determine tonight whether you're worthy enough to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now I said worthy, not sinless. None of the 11 that participated in the Lord's Supper were certainly sinless. Peter was about to Peter was about to deny that he knew Christ later that night with oaths and cursings. So he was far from sinless. But only the Holy Spirit and you can take inventory of your life and can make the determination of whether your life right now, you're worthy to participate in the Lord's Supper. You do not come to the table of the Lord with a spirit of disunity or the spirit of distraction. So how does one come, according to verse 27, in the middle of verse 27, unworthily? There's a, here's just a couple of things for you to consider tonight of how we approach the Lord's Supper unworthily. We are unworthy in the participation of the Lord's Supper when we do it ritualistically. That's just something that we do. Just something that we do. And it loses its meaning that's why we've kind of changed things around here a little bit trying to make the entire service focused on that because if you if you're not careful it can lose its meaning it become it can become ritualistic without without the participation in our hearts and minds we go we find ourselves just going through the motions instead of going through the emotions we are unworthy if we believe that the sacrament or that the ordinance in, imparts one of merit or grace it doesn't we are not saved because we participate in the Lord's supper we're saved by grace alone through faith alone by Jesus Christ alone we're unworthy if we come with a spirit of bitterness if we come with a spirit of hatred toward another believer And I'll go so far as to say this, if you come with a spirit of bitterness and hatred toward another person, believer or unbeliever, because listen, animosity has no place in the heart of a child of God for anyone. We are unworthy if we come to the Lord's Supper with sin that we refuse to repent. We are unworthy if we approach a table of the Lord without the most loftiest thoughts about the Godhead. And how serious is this? Paul says in verse 27, look at it with me. Paul says here that if we participate in the cup of the Lord unworthily, that person shall be what? Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. When you and I participate in the Lord's table unworthily, we literally trample on the body and blood of Christ. We walk all over it. You know, we look at the television and, uh, and the, patriot, the patriot in our hearts gets angry when we see somebody walking or burning or tearing the American flag. But we have absolutely no quorums whatsoever of coming to the church and approaching the Lord's table with division, distraction, and dis- distress and not give one thought about the fact that we're walking all over the body and blood of Christ. And that's what Paul says in verse 27 that we do when we approach it unworthily. It is not just that we dishonor the ceremony, we dishonor Christ. Because it is His sacrifice and His honor that we celebrate. How serious is this? Very serious. Look at verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many are dead. You know how how serious God takes this? Paul says that there are people in the church of Corinth that have died. Because they approach the table of the Lord unworthily. Folks, listen, I'm not trying to encourage no one not to participate. I want you all to participate, but I want us all to participate right with God. And I want us to take this thing seriously. We must not approach this celebration with evil. Because we are celebrating Christ's sacrificial atonement that he made for us. And then Paul says, wrapping it up in verse 31, for if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. This is serious stuff, folks. This is not just something that we block off a Sunday night every few months to do. This is is a serious commemoration. And being that it is such a serious commemoration, I'm going to encourage you tonight that before we partake of the elements, I'm going to encourage you tonight to get along with God, just you and God, and let the Holy Spirit take inventory of your heart. And please ask the Spirit of God, is there anything in my life, any division, any distraction, any distress that would cause me to be unworthy to participate in this? Any sin that that it's in my life that I know of that I haven't repented? Is there anything in my life that would cause me to not partake of this worthily. And I want to give you a few moments to do that now.
0: Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m., as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.